This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. If Sing Sing was a condo, it would be you know million-dollar condos. If you ever walk out of Sing Sing and look at the, look at the view across the Hudson River, you will not believe it. But once you go into those doors, it's a creepy, creepy joint. John O'Malley was a cop with the NYPD for 21 years. He's lost count of how many times he went to Sing Sing, usually when he was working on a case and needed to talk to an inmate. But when he walked into the prison in the summer of 2012, it was different. O'Malley was the one with the news for a convicted murderer named Eric Glisson. I was scared. Someone wants to see me, and I have to go to the front of the prison. And there, that's an indication that you telling on someone or, you know, you have a new charge. Some detectives is coming to re-arrest you or whatever. This time, they took me to a different part of the jail where they had visits and stuff like that. So I'm waiting in the office. I don't even think I sat down. I don't remember if there was even chairs. I thought, what they're going to accuse me of now? What, what What are they saying I did now? Eric had been in prison for 17 years. He knew... When a stranger pays you a surprise visit, it is not a good thing. He was so worried, he went into the room only after the guards threatened him. They opened the door and this guy is just sitting at the desk with glasses down to his nose. Looking, reading some papers. But when he looks up, his eyes is like real blue and piercing. And he had a big photo of me on the desk. So that wasn't good. I had an idea what Eric looked like from his mugshot that I, you know, when I printed it out. And, you know, all of a sudden an inmate, and it looked like him, he, he turns the corner, he walks in the room, he takes a look at me. He looks like he's a real detective, like one of those guys that their whole life they knew they wanted to do the right thing. You know, he walks in the door and he takes a look at me and he says, who the fuck are you? I'm Preet Bharara, and this is Doing Justice. I'm a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, SDNY. Basically, I was the head federal prosecutor in Manhattan. SDNY brings big cases. Fraud, terrorism, organized crime, government corruption. You name it, we did it. The legal system is about doing justice. And from the outside, it's not always clear how that works. How we take all the evidence and testimony and draw a hard line about what's right And what's wrong? The legal system is like a machine that takes the mess of every case and delivers a simple judgment. Guilty or not guilty. And there's a lot riding on that work. 
Victims deserve justice. People who are accused deserve a fair trial. And the public, all of us, deserve a rule of law that keeps us safe. The machinery of justice is complicated, and it's operated by human beings. In the end, justice is served or thwarted by people. People who are fallible and flawed, who come with biases and blind spots. When you ask Eric Glisson about himself, the first thing he'll tell you is about his daughters. His five-year-old, Scarlett, is really into space right now. We watch a lot of space, and she watched the space astronauts, the female space astronauts, and she loves it. Yeah, we even took a, a soccer ball, and I made a, a helmet. I cut it, and I put a piece of uh, plastic in the front. So she puts it on her head, and she's spacewalking. These days, Eric spends most of his time playing with his kids. Right now, he's building them a playground in their suburban backyard. I try to instill in her, girls can do anything. You could go to the moon if you want. You could go to space if you want. Eric never imagined that he would end up here, a stay-at-home dad preaching girl power. He grew up in the Soundview section of the Bronx, when the area was pretty run down and pretty dangerous. His childhood wasn't easy. Well, I wasn't an angel when I was growing up. I didn't have a father. I didn't have guidance. My mother died when I was 12. She was, she was very ill. I was raised by my grandmother and a few of my uncles, but I didn't have, I didn't have that, that direction. I didn't have where they made sure I went to school and things of, like that, but I basically raised myself. He dropped out of school after the fifth grade and spent his time hanging out with friends and working odd jobs like mowing lawns and shoveling snow. In 1995, Eric was 18 years old, living in a shared apartment across the street from his grandmother's place. He and his girlfriend were expecting their first child. I used to go to every appointment, every doctor's appointment, every sonogram, everything. And then we had Cynthia, and we brought her home from the hospital and like a week after that, I was arrested for a crime I didn't do. Time now is approximately 7.15 a.m. on January 19th, 1995. A livery cab driver named Bath Diop had been found slumped over his steering wheel, shot multiple times, the victim of an apparent robbery. The driver's money and cell phone were missing. Bath Diop was murdered in the middle of the night just doing his job dropping off some passengers. As he was dying, the cab rolled down the street and crashed into a dumpster in front of a schoolyard. It happened right around the corner from Eric's apartment. When the police started asking around, a woman who lived nearby said she'd looked out her bathroom window and seen Eric running away from the crime scene. A couple of days later, Eric was arrested. It wasn't the first time. He'd been arrested a couple of times for fighting, nothing serious. He was a minor then, and he was never convicted. This time, it was different. The police forced their way into his apartment and pinned Eric to the ground, with a knee in his back. At first, they said they were arresting him for burglary, but when they got to the precinct, they started asking him about some cab driver and finally told him what he was really there for, murder. You wonder why this is happening? Is it really true? When are they going to say the joke is up? But you find yourself going through all of these processes with the court, with uh, the detainment, Rackers Island, the Bronx House. And you're like, this is really true. 
It's happening. The police arrested five other people for the murder, too. Eric had never met any of them. There was no physical evidence tying Eric to the murder. In fact, there was no physical evidence tying any of the so-called Bronx Six to the crimes they were accused of. The case was based on witness testimony alone. Eric spent two years at Rikers Island waiting for trial. Finally, he ended up in a Bronx courthouse. So ultimately you go to trial, you're expecting the system to work, but that doesn't happen. You're convicted, ultimately sentenced to 25 years to life. So it's apparent that this is a railroad. But who can you tell? You can scream it out, but no one will listen. And you, you steady looking at the door, wondering when is it ever going to open. John O'Malley lives with his wife on a quiet suburban cul-de-sac. He's kind of a classic, hard-boiled detective type, so I didn't really expect him to live someplace so cozy. I visited in late December, and every inch of the house was decorated for Christmas. There were elves and wreaths and red and green plaid ribbons, a big glittering tree by the fireplace. How long have you guys been here? In this house, 20 years, in the town uh, since 86. Back in 1995, while Eric Glisson was just beginning to deal with a murder charge, John O'Malley was ending his career with the NYPD. Why did you become a cop? You know what? It was just something that I always knew I wanted wanted to be. And even if I look back at my yearbooks and things like that, everybody in the yearbook would, you know, sign my yearbook and say, you know, good luck, Johnny O in the NYPD. Good luck with the FBI. John grew up in the same neighborhood where Eric did, Soundview. In fact, the schoolyard next to Bath Diop's murder scene... John knew it. He used to play ball there as a kid. He knew the Bronx inside and out. He spent his career there investigating crimes just like the Diop case. When I was in homicide, that was at the, the, the height of the, of the crime in, in New York in the late 80s, early 90s. There wasn't a, a day or a week that went by that, that I wasn't responding on, on a murder. After 21 years with the NYPD, he moved from being a homicide detective to being an investigator at SDNY. John quickly got a reputation for two things. One, his encyclopedic knowledge of Bronx street crews and gangs. Whenever we'd get a letter with a tip about a gang-related crime, we'd pass it directly to John. Didn't matter who it was addressed to. For the last 30 years, my life is, all, all it's been is, is about murders, you know, murders, assaults, shootings, and things like that. I'd wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about these cases or thinking about these cases. It sounds crazy. And I'd have a, a thing next to my bed where I'd write it down so I wouldn't forget it the next day. And when I talk to detectives, they, they tell me the same thing. They say, you, you live it, you know, it, things always on your mind, you, you know, so it's just our life, you know, you do remember things. John also had a reputation for flipping witnesses. That's getting people to testify against the guys they committed crimes with. A lot of the time, the only people who witnessed a crime are the people who did it. So being able to get them to talk, it makes or breaks a lot of cases. First of all, they have to uh, admit to the, to the charged crime and they have to admit to basically everything they've ever done in their life criminally, you know, up until that point. Whether or not the cops already know about it. Correct. Right. Correct. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be charged with everything, but there, there might be things some, sometimes outside the statute of limitations, but we still have to know about it. And the judge at the time of sentencing will know the whole criminal history. You got to confess all your sins. Absolutely. 
people don't really understand it. You know, I've had this discussion with lots and lots of people who can't believe that a guy who's up on one robbery charge would admit to seven other robberies that the feds don't know about. What's what's the incentive for somebody who's in the crosshairs of law enforcement to confess and admit all this other stuff? That's a great question because you know even I even I at the beginning would say what why would these guys do this? But let's just give you an example. So we would do our homework. You know, we'd have like a set book. A set book had every guy we knew that was in that thing, in that gang or that crew. And that set book would be on our desk when we're about to try to flip somebody. And what we would do is say, listen, you know, here's a book. You can look through that book right now. What you don't know is who else we have in custody already, who in a year from now we're going to have in custody. So you may think that you can come in here and get over on us and tell us, give us half a loaf of bread when we want the whole loaf until... A year from now, we maybe get somebody else comes in, sits right in the chair that you're sitting in, and they and they blow you out of the water with something that you didn't tell us. How many guys do you think you flipped over your career? Oh, hundreds, hundreds. Do you still hear from any of them? Yeah, I do. You know, there's a couple of guys that always call me or, or text me. And, you know, I remember sitting here one day, it was Father's Day, and, and I had about three bings in a row, like bing, bing on my phone. And it was three separate cooperators saying, Happy Father's Day. And I remember saying to my wife, I go, Man, I got two sons. I didn't even hear from them yet. (laughs) So it's really amazing. Eric Glisson went to prison when he was just 21 years old. He walked in knowing he would spend 25 years behind bars. 25 years as an inmate number on a prison roster. 9787088. No one will ever forget that number. No one who has been incarcerated. You see so much violence in there. And there, they, they'll cut you if you if you part of another gang. They'll cut you if you don't give them money to buy drugs or something. They have knives in there. They have real knives. And they don't hesitate to, to use them. So in there, your life is basically nothing. The key to retaining your life back is... Grabbing yourself by the chest and saying, listen, man, looking in the mirror and say, listen, man, what's going on? Who are you? I learned that I had a lot of weaknesses that I didn't know existed. When you're growing up, you want to be tough, you want to be strong, you want to be invincible. But when you're alone and you're in that cell and there's no one else there, you, you come to terms with a lot of things. There are different ways to cope in prison. Some inmates join gangs. A lot of them use drugs. Eric didn't want that kind of escape. What Eric wanted was his freedom. So he focused on appealing his conviction. His public defender filed an appeal, but the court denied it. Eric knew he only had a few chances to appeal, and he wanted to get it right. So he spent hours and hours in the prison's law library working on his case. And he read other stuff too. History, science, math. He got his GED and enrolled in college courses. Working on his own case was a big challenge, even from a practical standpoint. The photocopier in the law library was really expensive. And prison jobs don't exactly pay well. You're making six cents an hour in there. You're making three to six dollars every two weeks. So Eric studied some technical manuals, learned about electronics, and he started freelancing. I fixed everyone's radio. I fixed the microwaves in the the officers' quarters, and they would 
would let me out for a little extra time or whatever. I fixed their fans. I fixed typewriters. Eric can build you a tattoo machine using a disc man, a big pen, and a guitar string. But meanwhile, his appeals were denied, one after another. Denial, 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 denial. It um, takes that fight out of you. Man. And that's where you have to dig deep into yourself to continue on. Because I knew if I was to get out, out of here, I needed to bring home a new man to my family. In 2006, after more than a decade behind bars, Eric lost his final appeal. His next shot at getting out of prison would be his first parole hearing, and that was 14 years away. That was one of the lowest points because now I have, I have no remedies, nothing. I'm stuck in prison. Then Eric had his first stroke of luck. There was a volunteer at Sing Sing who believed that Eric was innocent. She convinced a lawyer friend to take on Eric's case. My name is Peter Cross. I'm an attorney here in Manhattan. I handle problems that small and large businesses have with each other. Peter had no experience with cases like Eric's, but he knew he was Eric's last hope. And the more he talked to him, the more faith he had in Eric's innocence. So he agreed to work on it pro bono. Eventually, I saw that uh, he was, in fact, innocent based on on the physical evidence that 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 there was available about, about the case. But since Eric had exhausted all of his appeals, I came to believe that uh, the only way we were going to get Eric out is if we could identify the actual killers. Eric and I, basically, we worked together. We, we spoke on the phone a lot. I would call his office. His secretary would do research for me. She would Google something. But we were always doing Freedom of Information Act requests. Doing Freedom of Information requests. They denying you. You continue on. They deny you. They deny you. He would come up with ideas. I wrote people to find out things for me. I had people go into the crime scene taking photographs for me. And he was always asking his relatives and friends for information about who we thought were the, for him, like the prime suspects as to who would actually be the murderer. I read everything. I looked at the newspaper every day looking for something. Eric started saving newspaper clippings about people who'd been exonerated. He pasted them all over the wall of his cell. My wall of hope, because I looked at it all day, and it inspired me to continue on the fight. Over six years and countless phone calls, they grew close. Peter really cared about Eric and his case. The firm that I was with when I first took Eric's case, I think they got tired of my working on it. And um, let's put it this way. Uh, they wanted to change the relationship they had with the firm. So I, I ended up going elsewhere. Eric's case was actually <laughs> responsible for me uh, switching law firms a few times. Finally, in 2012, Eric and Peter had a theory about who the real killers were, guys from a Soundview gang called Sex Money Murder. My office, SDNY, had just successfully prosecuted a couple of the leaders of the gang. It was big news. Eric and Peter saw the case, and Eric wrote a letter to my office. I am writing because I, along with several other people, 
some of whom I don't know, were convicted of a crime related to the murder of Bab Diop. I have recently been informed that two individuals were the actual ones who committed that crime as an initiation in the SMM gang. Coming up, Eric's letter finds its way to John O'Malley, and the case takes a new twist. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Pro Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Before the break, Eric Glisson wrote a letter to my office. Two individuals were the actual ones who committed that crime as an initiation in the SMM gang. Whenever information about a homicide landed at SDNY, we would always forward it to John O'Malley. So one day, I get this inter-office envelope with my name on it, and I open it up, and I recognize it right away as a letter from a correctional facility, specifically Sing Sing. This was Eric's second stroke of luck. His letter reached someone with a long history of tracking these gangs. It wasn't a long letter, I think maybe a page and a half. And in the beginning of it, I was like, oh, another guy just, you know, spouting about he knows something about a case. And and I think at the very end, it said something like, you know, please help me, I'm in jail for this, and I didn't do it. And I remember getting a chill you know, down my on the back of my neck because I knew what the case was about. It was an oh shit moment, and it, it really was. It was like, holy crap. So I immediately run a rap sheet from my desk, and there's no doubt now that this guy has been arrested for a cabbie murder that 10 years earlier, members of Sucks Money and Murder confessed to me that they had done that murder. 10 years earlier, when John was flipping a witness on some other case, the guy also confessed to shooting a cab driver. From the moment he read the letter, John had good reason to believe that Eric was innocent. Eric's third stroke of luck? John remembered that confession, in part because it had happened in the neighborhood he grew up in. Soundview was a Crows Avenue, I believe, and, and it, there's, a, there's a park there that I used to play ball in when I was a kid. So 
I think that had a lot to do with it also because, you know, I, I knew the area and, 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 and I remember the cabby murder was right there near a schoolyard and, uh, you know, I played in that schoolyard. He immediately brought it to Margaret Garnett, the chief of the violent crimes unit in our office. Margaret comes from a family of generals. Her great-grandfather and both her grandfathers were high-ranking generals. Her father was career army too. She's a leader like that. Tough, disciplined, dedicated. John came to me and he said, I think it's possible that this guy is in jail for this murder that he's talking about in the letter. If that's true, then I don't think he's the person who did it. Margaret's job at the U.S. Attorney's Office was to prosecute violent crimes. But really, our main responsibility as prosecutors is to always seek justice. People don't usually think of prosecutors as exonerators, but that's part of the job, too. You know, there never was a question in my mind that if it was true that Eric Lawson had not committed this murder and had not participated in it in any way, that we had a responsibility to get to the bottom of it and either prove or disprove his claim that he was in jail for something he didn't do. I remember being briefed on the Glisson case in my eighth floor office. Clearly, we needed to act. So Margaret and John got to work. John tracked down Gilbert Vega and Joey Rodriguez, the guys who'd confessed to the cabbie killing a decade earlier. What had happened was they were in Manhattan with some girls or something, and uh, they wanted to go back to the Bronx, and the cab driver drove them to the Bronx. And on the ride back, they knew they didn't have any money, so they're talking to each other, says, we're going to have to rob this guy. And, you know, we'll, we'll just jump out of the cab. And when the cab stopped, there was an altercation, and shots were fired, and... Uh, they jumped out of the cab, but before doing so, they, they took the cabbie's cell phone and they ran. Uh, Vega wasn't even sure that they had killed him. So you get the confession from Vega, then you get the confession from Rodriguez, but to get them to plead guilty to that crime, you wanted to find the paperwork that should have existed if there was a murder in the Bronx. Correct. So I called the 43rd precinct. I said to him, I said, look, I'm looking for this open murder, a cabbie murder, you know, around this area. And they got back to me and said, we don't have anything like that. So I says, you know, I'm, are you sure? He goes, yep, we don't have any open murders, no cabbie murders. At that time, it really wasn't unusual for me because Vegas said he wasn't sure if the guy was, was killed. And I thought maybe the guy was able to drive away and go to, go, go to another hospital. Plus, in the past, I've had other guys come in to me and tell me they murdered people. And I found those people alive, you know, so <laughs> it's... I think you once said, you know, not every shooter stops and checks the pulse. Exactly. It, so part of the reason there was no open case was they had made a case against Eric Lisson and others. Exactly. When I asked for open homicide file on a cab driver, the case was closed because they had made arrests. And I never would have imagined that there, you know, that there would be a wrongful arrest there. But, you know, 10 years later, I'd find that out. Do you think anybody at the 4-3 was being cute with you? No, absolutely not. No. After reading Eric's letter, John contacted Gilbert Vega and Joey Rodriguez just to make sure they didn't have any other accomplices. They said they didn't. It was mid-June when John went to Sing Sing to meet Eric. He drove up from the city with the Hudson River to his left, rolling hills and spring green forest to his right. From far away, Sing Sing looks like a cluster of brick industrial buildings. When you get closer, you notice the barbed wire. Eric had spent so much time trying to get the right people to listen to him, to believe that he was innocent. After 17 years, he'd given up on good news. 
you know, he walks in the door and he takes a look at me and he says, who the fuck are you? I said, I introduced myself. I'm from the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in Manhattan. I said, I got your letter. And I, and I said, listen, I know you're innocent. I know who did this. And immediately his whole demeanor changed. He just like, his legs buckled and he's like, what do you mean? I said, listen, I know who did it. I know you didn't do it. I was just, just looking in the haystack. I was looking for that needle and finding nothing. But then that day I got stuck and I knew there was no more searching. John O'Malley was like Jesus walking on water. I, I shook his hand. I think I even apologized. And I said to him, you know, we'll get to the bottom of this. We'll get you out of here. When John left the prison, he called Eric's lawyer, Peter Cross. Peter was in line at the bank when he got the call. Mr. Cross, I'm John O'Malley from the Southern District of New York. I just met with your client because I received his letter and I told him that I know he's innocent. I'm sure I was pretty much speechless. Uh, Sure, I thanked him. I got him. (laughs) That was one of the best moments in my life. To get an exoneration, the defendant needs to file a motion to vacate their conviction based on new evidence. The prosecutors, in this case the Bronx DA, can either agree with the motion, fight the motion, or remain neutral. It's fastest and easiest when the prosecutors agree with the motion or do nothing. And that's what we were hoping for. So John and Margaret scheduled a meeting to tell the Bronx DA about the new evidence. The first meeting that we had I remember very clearly because it was the day that we were having a violent crimes unit summer outing at Yankee Stadium. And the Bronx District Attorney's Office is right down the street from Yankee Stadium. The DA's office is on a tree-lined boulevard, not far from a small manicured park named for Alfred Joyce Kilmer, who's considered one of the worst poets ever. His best-known work goes, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. As you get closer to the DA's office, the trees give way to check cashing places, bail bondsmen, defense attorney's offices with brittle yellowed signs that look like they've been there forever. In the DA's office, John and Margaret met with Ed Talty, the longtime chief of homicide there, and Sean O'Toole, the head of Bronx homicide at the NYPD. These were the guys responsible for solving and prosecuting all the murder cases in the Bronx. John had known Sean O'Toole for decades. Um, They had served together in Bronx Homicide. um, And Ed Tolte and I talked probably once a week, I would say, um, as partners in kind of two agencies investigating murders in the Bronx. And had, I think, John and I both felt that we had good, professional, respectful relationships with both Ed and Sean. And we thought We expected to go into the meeting and that they would share our concerns. Margaret and John thought the Bronx DA and NYPD would take one look at the gang members' confessions to the Diop murder and quickly do the right thing. And that was not the way the meeting went. (laughs) The meeting didn't go as well as I I thought it would go. And then it, it, I mean, they listened, but you could tell that, you know, they didn't want to hear what we were saying. 
They did not seem concerned. Um, I think Lieutenant O'Toole in particular was very resistant. And I said that he remembered the case very clearly. It was rock solid. And we didn't realize going into the meeting, but Lieutenant O'Toole at the time of Glisson's arrest in the mid-90s had participated in, he'd been on the arrest team when Glisson was arrested for the Diop homicide. I guess it was the silence and, and the way they, they, they reacted that kind of surprised me. That's all. I just expected to, you know, a little bit more. Like when we left, I, I, I described it as, Mar- as to Margaret as, you know, don't let the door hit you in the ass type type thing. And I remember John and I um, leaving the meeting, walking down the street to Yankee Stadium to meet our colleagues. Uh, both of us kind of stunned silence for the first block or two, trying to make sense of what had happened. John and Margaret came to a stunning realization. The Bronx was actually going to fight the motion to vacate Eric's conviction. And that meant that Eric would remain in prison for who knows how long. I mean, prison is can be a very dangerous place. I think we both felt that if something were to happen in prison, whether a health issue or being the victim of some kind of violence, that that would just be something that we would have a really hard time living with. The first thing they had to do was get the case files. And they weren't going to get them from the police or DA. So they got what they could from Eric's lawyer. We got, the trial transcript was three or four banker's boxes um, of paper. And John and I both started reading sort of in parallel whenever we had a spare minute during our day. And I can remember, you know, as we would see each other in the halls or we one of us would come into the other's office and say, like, how far are you? Like, have you seen this? We would leave little... Um, highlighted or yellow flagged um, pages from the transcript on each other's chairs. We needed to prove that the cabbie murder Vega and Rodriguez confessed to was the Diop murder. It seemed clear. The location of the crime scene was the same. The wounds on the victim were the same. The description of the driver was the same. They looked closely at the prosecutor's case against Eric and began to pick it apart. First, There was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. No weapon, no fingerprints, no DNA. It all hung on the word of one witness, the woman who'd said she looked out of her bathroom window and seen Eric running from the scene. But John looked over the records and realized she couldn't possibly have seen anything clearly. Her apartment was too far away. The angle was wrong. And it was dark at the time of the murder. Also, that one witness, she was Eric's ex-girlfriend a woman he jilted. And during the initial investigation, she kept changing her story. She wasn't reliable. Reading the transcript of the original trial, I was shocked that they had convicted them. I mean, I thought the evidence was very thin. So that was definitely a takeaway of mine from the transcript that, oh my God, I can't believe that they managed to convict these people on this evidence. So the case was weak. But the conviction would stand unless Margaret and John found more definitive proof. And they found it in one of those bankers' boxes full of documents. Vega and Rodriguez had told John that after they shot Diop, they stole his cell phone. That was the key. 
the phone records showed like minutes after the shooting that there were calls made to certain people. And one of the persons that was called was related to uh, Joey Rodriguez, Green Eyes, Joey Green Eyes. So is there an argument that had that evidence been exploited back in 1995, things might have turned out differently? Absolutely. Back in 1995, the Bronx prosecutor had the cell phone records, but he didn't share them with the defense. He and the judge believed they were irrelevant to proving Eric's guilt or innocence. The phone records weren't released until more than 10 years later, thanks to one of Eric's many Freedom of Information Act requests. That's how the cell phone records ended up in that banker's box. As the summer of 2012 wore on, we were all concerned that the Bronx DA wasn't doing the right thing and admitting their mistake quickly enough. So Margaret kept in contact with them, trying to convince them of Eric's innocence. But three months in, Eric was still in prison, and the Bronx DA still wouldn't budge. So we kept pushing. What was true and right was very clear to us, and if we weren't willing to take risks in service of that, then we really ought to just put our badges on the desk and and walk out. That's when we did something unusual for SDNY. John O'Malley himself swore out an affidavit attesting to Eric's innocence. John O'Malley hereby affirms on the penalty of perjury. I submit this affidavit in connection with the motion by the homicide of Faith Diop. The general time frame... The African driver, location showing calls to associates of Vega and Rodriguez, including a Lewis Rodriguez with the same address. The court reopened the case, and Peter thought his client would be free in a matter of weeks. Little did I know it would take us months of fighting with the Bronx DA to get them to consent to Eric's release. The DA postponed while the police spent months reinvestigating the case. Peter thinks the Bronx was just dragging its feet, that they didn't want to reopen the case, that they didn't care about Eric and the others, and that they definitely didn't want them to be exonerated. They didn't want to admit that they made a mistake, put these people in jail for all these years and have a wrongful conviction case. I mean, this case was so stupid to begin with, all right, that once it started to fall apart, it was really going to fall apart. Even John O'Malley was surprised at how long the reinvestigation took. But John doesn't think the police were stonewalling. He thinks they were just doing what they thought was right. Lieutenant O'Toole is is a lieutenant's been there for 20 years and, and, and one of the greatest guys I've ever worked for or with. I would back him, you know, to the end. I mean, the guy's a, a brilliant guy and, and an honest guy, and I didn't like some of the things that were being said about him. Do you have a view about how this went wrong back in 95? You know, I thought about that, and, and, I, and I don't know. I mean, before we can make an arrest on a homicide, we have to call the uh, assistant district attorney, and they, will, they have to approve that arrest. I mean, they're not going to give you the approval unless they feel they have a winnable case. And there's an ADA that's assigned to the case. The, the ADA that did this case was one of their top guns. I know him very well. And now you have a jury of 12 people in the Bronx. 
And the Bronx, to be honest with you, I think they have the lowest conviction rate of any of any borough in the city. You know, so he, you know, he have a case that that went through all those processes and then goes to the jury and he gets convicted. So I guess my answer is I don't have an answer for you as to how this happens. As for the Bronx DA and NYPD, they didn't respond to our requests for comment on this case. So much had to go wrong for Eric to get convicted. Things had to go wrong over and over and over again for months. It was a very personal reminder that the system is built on human beings, and so it's inevitably riddled with failure. People are flawed and get things wrong. Um, But that kind of coming face-to-face with that failure and the human consequences of it just a reminder to like just don't be too sure that you're right like never be too sure that you're right and just to always be mindful of what the human cost is and that you better be sure eric walked out of prison in october of 2012. he was on conditional release wearing an ankle monitor the TV program Dateline filmed his first day of freedom. It's October 22nd, 2012. Eric Glisson is finally a free man. Oh, I've seen this in the magazine. Eric's first few hours of freedom Hello? are part exhilaration. Hello? Part discovery. Hello? He's never actually used a cell yeah. phone. Wait, wait, Cynthia. Hello? You got it upside down, Eric. Hello? No, no, no. Upside, it's upside down. Two days after his release, Eric started taking his college classes again. In the same professor's classes that was coming to Sing Sing. Partly because he wanted to get his degree as soon as possible, and partly because school was now the one constant in his life. The thing was, I was really conscious of, of my leg in school. Like walking up the stairs or sitting down and other students being able to see that you had that ankle monitor because it's really bulky. Eric's daughter, Cynthia, was almost 18 when he got out. Eric never really got to be a father to her. He didn't have much family, and he didn't have many friends on the outside anymore either. Most of the people he grew up with, he says, were in prison or dead. About a month after Eric got out, he asked John and Margaret to meet with him. He wanted to thank them in person. They met in a conference room on the first floor of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Lower Manhattan. It's a brutalist concrete building, close to the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Inside, it's no prettier. The furniture is shabby, and the people overworked. And it's one of my favorite places to be. We all went in and uh, shook hands and, you know, talked about the case a little bit. And uh, What did he say? He he was very grateful. You know, he he said, you know, he said, thank you so much to both myself and Margaret. I kind of feel weird when somebody, you know, he's thanking me, but, you know, for doing the job that we're supposed to do, because there was something that shouldn't have happened, and, and it did happen, and, uh, and I just felt bad for him. John explained how Eric's letter had landed on his desk, how he'd flipped the two sex money murder guys, and how he remembered Bath Diop's death, because it happened in front of the schoolyard where he used to play. I even said to him, I said, listen, I hate to use the word luck with you, because obviously you don't have any, but... You know, that part of it was luck for him. And, you know, he laughed about it and we laughed about it. And, and you know, this this was, 
a good turnout. Unfortunately, you know, later than it should have been, but it was a good turnout. In 2016, three years after Eric's exoneration, he and the other members of the so-called Bronx Six sued the city and state for wrongful conviction. They won a $40 million settlement. That might sound like a lot, but no amount of money could give them back the 17 years they spent in prison. In the years since then, Eric has gotten engaged and moved to a big house outside of the city, about an hour north of Sing Sing. He runs some businesses, but mostly, he's a stay-at-home dad. Feed the horses? We gave them apples. There's no apples. We don't have any more. We'll go home and get some. You still get some apples. When Eric thinks about what happened to him, he says, amazingly, that he doesn't feel angry. I explained to myself by saying I'm not the only one. There are more people out there. I'm just one of the individuals that got caught up in in this serious injustice that's going on in our country. Me, I have to always keep a positive outlook in life. I've trained myself for that because that was the only way I was going to get through. I've turned Eric's case over and over in my mind, wondering how six people could have ended up in prison on so little evidence. We often hear stories like this, about poor people of color getting swallowed up by a system that's meant to protect people. In the case of Eric Glisson and his co-defendants, the best thing you can say is that a lot of people made a lot of mistakes. Here's the thing. The law doesn't do justice. People do. Investigations are complicated. There are a million ways to investigate a case. There are also a million ways to get it wrong. Regardless, the people who work in the system every day bear a profound responsibility to do their best to get it right and to make it better when they get it wrong. You know, I think sometimes in lots of areas we have a tendency to think that it's too late, it won't matter, um, something terrible happened and, and that's sort of all that matters. But I think just like human beings run the system and so it's prone to error, I think human beings also have this tremendous capacity to fix mistakes, to right wrongs, and it's never too late to fix something that's wrong. From CAFE, this is Doing Justice, produced in collaboration with Transmitter Media. This episode was written and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz. This podcast is based on my best-selling book, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law, which you can find at doingjusticebook.com and wherever books are sold. Our editor is Sarah Nix, and the executive producer is Greta Cohn. The executive producer at Cafe Studios is Tamara Sepper, and the chief business officer is Jeff Eisenman. Meryl Agish fact-checked this episode, and Hannes Brown composed our original music and was our mix engineer for this series. I'm Preet Bharara. Next time, a shadowy business deal, some bribes, and an intricate sting operation, SDNY takes on New York's crooked politicians. His friends turned on him. He became radioactive. They felt that he was a, a traitor. 
that he was a liar, that he was a dirty, slimy rat. For a behind-the-scenes look at each episode of Doing Justice, become a member of Cafe Insider and catch me in conversation with journalist Biana Galodriga. You can do so at cafe.com insider.